You're listening to Nitty Gritty Nursing with Nurse M, where she breaks down the nitty gritty basics of nursing concepts. Hello and welcome to Nitty Gritty Nursing with Nurse M. I got a request. Uh, <laughs> someone reached out and asked about tracheostomies and if I could do an episode on tracheostomies and kind of walk through the different kinds and sort of the nursing considerations you would want to take into consideration if you are caring for any patient who has a tracheostomy. And so I'm going to give it a go. So that's what this episode is all about. And we're going to start from the bottom. So a tracheostomy is just an opening that is made surgically directly into the trachea to establish an airway. And then a tracheostomy tube is then inserted into the opening and the tube attaches to the mechanical ventilator, if that's what they're breathing on, or another type of oxygen delivery device, if that's what they require. And tracheostomies in and of themselves can actually be temporary or they can be permanent. So one of the things, if you have a patient, I'm going to talk about the interventions that you would do at the bedside if you're taking care of a patient who has a tracheostomy. And some of the things you're going to do is, of course, because they have an artificial airway, we are going to assess their respirations and we're going to listen to their breath sounds. The other things you would want to consider is monitoring their ABGs and their pulse oximetry to ensure that they have adequate ventilation and oxygenation occurring. People who end up with tracheostomies have some sort of either foreign airway obstruction in the upper half that we cannot resolve, or maybe they've got some sort of cancer um, that was blocking their upper airway or some sort of surgical procedure that they, they had. And so there is a wide variety of reasons why someone might end up with a tracheostomy. But regardless, it all stands to mention that your respiratory assessment is going to be critical. You're going to look at those ABGs in your pulse oximetry. These patients also, we are going to encourage them to cough and deep breathe. And we would really like them to actually maintain a semi-phalars to a high-phalars position. So we want them kind not lying flat effectively. We want them leaning upward or just reclined backward. And that's really to help with some of the secretions because the way that a tracheostomy is put in, right? There's usually a lateral incision through the skin and then a horizontal incision through the tracheal rings to get the tube into the trachea. Now, because of that, you want to monitor the site for bleeding and difficulty with breathing. And that's going to manifest itself as absence of breath sounds, especially if there's some sort of clog or obstruction occurring inside of their tracheostomy tube. And you're going to want to feel around the insertion site and you're going to feel for crepitus, which is that subcutaneous emphysema, which would indicate that air is being leaked into the tissue around the stomacite where the trach is located. So then you would want to suction as needed, suction the fluids. And the big question that I think I frequently get from individuals is what is the, they want a reminder of like what the nursing action is for actually suctioning someone with a trach. And really the way, the, what you do is you just explain to the person what you're going to do if they're conscious and alert and awake and you put them in an upright position because we want gravity to work with us. And then of course, wash your hands, put on your own PPE. My rule of thumb personally is anything that is wet, sticky or not mine, I'm going to protect myself. And then get all of your suction equipment ready and turn the suction on. Now, before you do anything with that patient, you want to hyper-oxygenate them. So usually you can get a trach 
cover for an O2 device. Um, it's you would it's like a, the na- the variation of a, na- a simple mask, but for a trach site and not for the facial site. And you want to hyper oxygenate these people. Um, it tends to you'll have sterile water inside of these kits, and once you are done, because when you're suctioning, you don't want to introduce bacteria down into their lungs and then cause a pneumonia to develop. That would be bad. So after you have hyper oxygenated these people, you will then take the sterile catheter out of the box, insert it into their trach with no suction. Okay. So usually you actually have to attach the suction canister, the suction catheter to the suction tubing, and there's going to be a hole on the actual suction tubing um, that when you close that with your gloved hand, it actually uh, starts the suction process down the tube in the distal portion. So don't do that while you're inserting it. You want to insert the catheter. And then once inserted, you will put your finger over that hole and apply suction intermittently while you are actually rotating the catheter and pulling it out at the same time. Once you've done that, you then hyper-oxygenate your client again, listen to their breath sounds, reassess their oxygen status, and then document everything that you've done and whether or not it was effective. So that is, in a nutshell, how you would suction someone who's got a trach. This leads us into the different types of trachs that you might run into, the tracheostomy tubes that you might see. So there are double lumen and single lumen tubes. The double lumen tube has a few different components that you should be aware of. So it's got the outer cannula, and that outer cannula is what fits into the stoma and keeps the airway open. And the faceplate, which is the piece of the trach tube that sits on the outside of the neck, is what indicates the size and type of tube um, and has really small holes on both sides for securing this tube with a tracheostomy tie. And it's you'll either see a true tie, sometimes they're Velcro-based, where you can adjust how tight it is on the person's neck, but you, you would like for it to be flush to their neck and secured because this is their airway. Now, the the next component of a double lumen tube is that there is this inner cannula, and the inner cannula fits really snugly into the outer cannula and locks into place. And it's usually locked into place just by rotating it. I think it's it's clockwise. And so it provides the universal adapter for use with the ventilator and other respiratory therapy equipment. So that inner cannula is what actually sticks out and can be attached, say, for example, to um, an Ambu bag or to a vent or to some other respiratory device that you might need in the care that you're providing to these patients. Now, some of these inner cannulas can be removed and cleaned and reused, and there are going to be other ones that are disposable. And so it will just depend on what your facility is using. And you'll have to look at the packaging to make that determination. The third component of a double lumen trach tube is an obturator, which is a stylet with a smooth end. And that is used to facilitate the direction of the tube when inserting or changing the tracheostomy tube. So the obturator is removed immediately after the tube gets put in. And you always, always, always want to keep an obturator at the bedside with the client in the case of an accidental decannulation where maybe that trach tube comes out accidentally, you have to have that obturator as sort of the stylet in an ET tube. So if you've ever watched, uh, you know, someone be intubated with an endotracheal tube, they have a stiff metal tube wire inside the tube that helps 
that tube to keep its form so they can place it successfully. That is effectively what the obturator is in a tracheostomy tube. And then the fourth component of a double lumen tube is going to be the cuff. And the cuff is what is inflated and seals the airway to protect it. And the cuffed tube is used for mechanical ventilation. It's used to prevent aspiration of oral or gastric secretions. And it's used for clients who are receiving tube feedings to prevent aspiration. A pilot balloon, which is the balloon that is on the outside, um, usually indicates the presence or absence of air in the cuff. And it looks like a little pillow that you would um, blow up um, or the, the provider or you know, whoever's managing the trach and the inflation would blow it up. And that's what helps them determine how much air is actually in the cuff, securing it inside the trachea. That is your double lumen tube. If you have a single lumen tube, the single lumen tube is similar to the double one, except that there's no inner cannula. More intensive nursing care is actually required with this tube because there is no inner cannula to ensure that the that the lumen is patent. And what that basically means is um, it, come, it comes with a single tube and it'll come again with an obturator to help in the placement of it. And some of them have that cuff. But the difference is that there isn't a secondary removable component that helps to keep the trach open. So your nursing care really has to be focused on ensuring that that stays cleaned um, that you're suctioning it adequately and that like mucus is not building up on the inside, which would inhibit your patient's ability to breathe. Then you've got a fenestrated tube and a fenestrated tube has a pre-cut opening. They're called fenestrations um, in the upper posterior wall of the outer cannula. So it, the outer cannula is what is actually going into the person's trach hole. Okay. When you've got a fenestrated tube, you have tiny holes that are in the upper portion of it on the back side of that outer cannula. And the tube is used to wean clients from tracheostomies. Um, so if someone, if this was a temporary fix and they had a double lumen cuffed tube while they were in their critical condition and now the providers want to wean them off of the trach, they will switch them over to a fenestrated tube. And basically what that does is it, it allows the client, um, to, help them wean off of it by ensuring that they can tolerate breathing through their own natural airway before the entire tube is removed. And this tube will allow the client to speak because the why that we speak is we are actually, as we breathe in and fill our lungs with air, we are passing air through our vocal cords and that is how we get sound to come out. When people have trachs and it's cuffed, if they just are going in and out through that trach, they cannot speak because the air is not passing through the vocal cords because the trach tube itself is actually placed below the vocal cords. And so then if it's cuffed, the air doesn't go above to pass through the vocal cords. And that is why a fenestrated tube is used to start to wean individuals off of a true tracheostomy because then they get to practice breathing through their own natural airway above and they can speak. Um, and then you've got the cuffed fenestrated tube. And the cuffed fenestrated tube facilitates mechanical ventilation and speech and is often used for clients who have spinal cord paralysis or some sort of neuromuscular disease who don't require ventilation all the time. So when they're not on the ventilator, the client can have the cuff deflated and the tube capped. And I'll talk about capped tube, the caps that go on these tubes. 
so that they can speak. And a cuffed fenestrated tube is never used in weaning off of a trach because the cuff, even fully deflated, uh, partially obstructs the airway. So those are the different types of trachs. You've got your double lumen that has the outer cannula and the inner cannula, which you can remove and clean and put back and it ensures it's patent. It comes with a cuff and a pilot balloon to determine how much hair is being inflated. And it has its obturator. You always want to have an obturator at the bedside with patients who've got trachs in case it becomes out, then you can put one back in. You've got your single tube versions that also sometimes come cuffed or uncuffed. You've got fenestrated, which has holes above the cuff that allow people to wean off of trachs to breathe through their own natural airway and it allows them to speak. And then you've got cuffed fenestrated tubes, which you will probably only ever see in uh, neuromuscular diseased patients or those with spinal cord paralysis. So now that we know the different types of trach tubes that exist, here are some considerations. Now, if your client has a tracheostomy, right, and they are allowed to eat, you, in the process of allowing them to eat, would want to sit them straight up for meals to, and you want to make sure that, that the cuff that they've got is inflated. And this, you want to make sure it's inflated for meals and for at least an hour after the meals to prevent them from aspirating. Now, because there is a cuff inside their trachea, which is fairly delicate, you also want to make sure that you are monitoring the pressures inside that those cuff pressures as prescribed. And there's different ways to do that. It's different based on the types of trachs you get used to, uh, you know, feeling the, the pilot balloon and kind of just understanding how much air is in there, but follow your agency's policy and your provider's orders. And then in terms of your nursing care, you always want to assess the stoma, the trach stoma for secretions, for blood, or for some sort of purulent drainage. Now, in terms of just general management, I talked about the obturator always being at the bedside of a patient that you're taking care of with a trach, but there are a few other things that you always want to make sure you have available. So you want to make sure that the Ambu bag that you have sitting near your patient, you can connect it successfully to the trach in the event that you would need it. So you want to have an Ambu bag. You always want to have that obturator, which is that guide. And um, then you want to keep clamps and a spare trach tube of the same size at the bedside. I don't know if your hospital facilities are anything like the ones that I've worked in, but what I do know is, especially if your patient has a really unique brand or size or specifically the different types of cuffs versus non-cuffed tubes, they can be really hard to get your hands on in an emergency, especially if someone accidentally like pulls their trach out and then they you've lost an airway. So you always want to make sure you have an extra trach kit with the same tube, the same size, the obturator sitting at the bedside in that patient's room in the event of um, a medical emergency. In terms of complications that can occur with tracheostomies, there's a few different things you want to consider. There are actually six different potential problems that can happen. And I'm going to start with what I think is the simplest and then work my way back through the more complicated variations. So the first complication of a trach is that it can become dislodged. And basically, if that happens, the way it will manifest is your patients will have difficulty breathing. They're going to have really 
really noisy respirations because that tube is dislodged and that tube is their airway. As a result, they're not going to breathe appropriately, so they're going to become restless. They might have excessive coughing and then some sort of wheeze or strider. So the way that you would manage that is you really need to be familiar with your institution's policy about replacement of a trach tube as a nursing procedure. In some places, if a tube becomes dislodged, depending on how old or new the trach stoma is, some nurses are trained and checked off to be able to drop a trach the replacement trach tube. The first 72 hours after the placement of a surgical tracheostomy is really the most critical. And so if the tube were to become dislodged during this time frame, essentially the, the nurse, you know, would take the patient off of the mechanical vent and then start to manually ventilate them using that Ambu bag while someone else calls for like a rapid response to get additional help to come in. Um, because basically in order to replace it, if it's within that 72 hour window, you would extend your patient's neck to open the tissues of the stoma to secure that airway, and then you grab the retention sutures if they're even there to spread the opening and use a trach dilator, which is a curved clamp, to hold the stoma open and then prepare to insert that trach tube with the obturator in place and insert it, remove the obturator, and then ventilate them with the Ambu bag and assess their respiratory status. That's basically (laughs) if the tube became dislodged in that time frame, that's what you would do. But again, it's going to be based on your institution's policy. The way just to prevent tube dislodgement as part of your nursing checks is to make sure that the tube is secure in place. Minimize the manipulation of it and the traction on that tube. So if your patients have a trach and they are on a ventilator, make sure that the traction or the pulling on that is minimized so that the tube doesn't get dislodged. And then you always want to just make sure that you have that trach tube of the same type and size at the client's bedside at all time. So that's tube dislodgement. If in the event that the tube becomes, here's your second problem, the tube becomes obstructed, your patients will have difficulty breathing again. They're going to have noisy respirations, especially if they're if it's on the inside cannula of that tube. Uh, they're likely also to have you, when you go to suction them, might not be able to pass the catheter, that those thick, dry secretions can um, really occlude the inner diameter of that cannula. And if they are on a vent, you will have unexplained peak pressures that you'll see because the air is having to increase its pressure just to try to get through. So if you notice that, or if you're concerned that there's a tube obstruction occurring, notify the healthcare provider for them to come and evaluate the tube itself or replace it if the obstruction has occurred in that kind of effect. And the way to prevent it is really, that's why we encourage these patients to cough and take deep breaths to try to keep those cannulas clear. You can also give them humidified oxygen, make sure you're suctioning them and really clean that inner cannula super regularly. Now, the next four complications of a tracheostomy are going to become um, <laughs> very complicated. So I do apologize ahead of time, especially if I mispronounce any of the word words. But the first complication of a trach that is not either dislodgement or an obstruction is called a trachea innominate arteri fistula. And that's where a poorly positioned trach tube causes the distal tip of that tube is pushing against the lateral wall of the trachea. And because of that, with the continued pressure, it basically causes 
necrosis and erosion to occur inside the trachea on the innominate artery. And this is a medical emergency. And so what that will look like is if this is the case and the trach tip of the tube is pushing on this artery, the trach tube will actually pulsate in synchrony with your patient's heartbeat because it's beating to the beat of the heartbeat. So that's one of the manifestations of it. If it gets to this point where it causes an necrosis and erosion into the artery, then you're dealing with heavy bleeding from the stoma, and this is life-threatening. The management for this is apply pressure to the artery at the stoma site, and then that trach tube gets removed, and they go back to surgery. So try to avoid that and make sure that the trach tube is not pulsating, which would be indicative of it riding that artery. The next really complicated trach complication is a tracheoesophageal fistula. And this results when we've got those trach tubes that have a cuff. Excessive pressure from these cuffs cause erosion of the posterior wall of the trachea. It's like an internal pressure ulcer that is developing because when you have that cuff that's been inflated and pushing on the delicate tissues of the trachea, you can create a hole between the trachea and the anterior esophagus. And then you've got a a fistula that's basically formed between these two. And the client at highest risk also has a nasogastric tube present because you've got a tube inside the esophagus, a tube inside the trachea. They're pushing on each other. They create this fistula. So how this will manifest itself is very similar to a different complication called a tracheomalacia, where there is an increased amount of air that is required in the cuff to maintain the seal. So if you feel like this the cuff needs a lot of air, that should be an indication that maybe there's a potential for this to occur. You will also see food particles in tracheal secretions because of the fistula, that has, the passageway that has developed between the esophagus and the trachea. Again, that cuff is going to require more and more air to achieve an appropriate seal. Um, these patients will also have quite a bit of coughing and choking while they're eating because food is passing from the trachea, or excuse me, from the esophagus into the trachea, causing aspiration. And so how we manage this is you'll want to suction these patients, give them oxygen manually by mask to prevent hypoxemia, and then use a soft, a small soft feeding tube instead of a nasogastric tube for tube feeding. So like a Dobhoff tube versus like your classic thick, you know, 16 French NG tube that we'd put in for like a bowel obstruction. And then really the, just the way to prevent this is to be cognizant of how much pressure is in that cuff on the trach, monitor your patient for the amount of air needed for the inflation and um, progress to a deflated or a cuffless tube if possible. The next trach complication is called tracheal stenosis, which is a narrowed tracheal lumen, is the result of scar formation from irritation of the tracheal mucosa by the cuff. So this, I mean, trachs don't come without inherent risks. And trachs with cuffs have the potential to do a lot of damage. This is ultimately what I'm taking away here. So tracheal stenosis, that stenosis is seen usually after the cuff is deflated or the trach tube has been removed. And these patients have an increase in coughing and they have an inability to adequately or appropriately get rid of their secretions, difficulty breathing and talking because they've got some sort of tracheal stenosis, which is the narrowed lumen. So the way that we manage this is once we've identified it, they'll actually go in for a 
tracheal dilation or some sort of surgical intervention. Um, the way that we can try to prevent this with patients who have a trach with a cuff is to prevent pulling of and traction on that trach tube. Again, think back to if your patient has a trach, they're likely on some sort of mechanical ventilation. Be cognizant of how much tugging is occurring on that trach tube. Make sure that it is properly secured in the midline position of their neck and not pulling one way or the other. Maintain those cuff pressures as well. And the last really complicated trach complication is the tracheomalacia, which is constant pressure exerted by the cuff that causes tracheal dilation and erosion of the cartilage. And the way that this manifests is that an increased amount of air is required into the cuff. So this is similar to the tracheoesophageal fistula in that the cuff is going to require more and more air in order to maintain the seal. You might also see food particles in this one as well because of the tracheal dilation and erosion of the cartilage, right? The more the trachea dilates, the harder it is to seal. Now we have the potential for aspiration to occur. So we are going, the way we manage this with this particular patient is you just watch them very carefully. There's no special management unless there's bleeding or some sort of airway problem. Again, the way that we prevent this is to monitor the cuff pressure and air volume closely to detect changes in the requirement of that dilation. So if, for example, and I'm just throwing random numbers out here, if your patient has a trach with a cuff and the cuff requires only five milliliters of air, I'm not a respiratory therapist, nor have I worked in an ICU, I've not worked heavily with trachs, so I don't know if this is a lot or a little. So if you're listening to this and you're like, holy cow, that's like a ton of air or not enough air, I don't know. This is just hypothetically. For the tracheomalacia, which is that tracheal dilation and erosion of the cartilage, if your patient initially only requires five milliliters of air in order to seal that cuff adequately to be able to ventilate them, Part of the prevention is monitoring whether or not I only require five milliliters down the road, because what will happen is as the trach starts to dilate in this complication, now it's going to require six milliliters and then seven milliliters. As soon as you recognize that, one of the other prevention techniques that you can use is to use an uncuffed tube as soon as possible. So those are six really um, complicated, four really complicated and two, you know, complicated trach issues that can occur. Trach tube dislodgement, obstruction, and then you've got the trachea innominate arter artery fistula from a malpositioned tube that basically causes this erosion, uh, this pressure, necrosis and erosion into that artery. And then you've got a fistula that can form. You've got the stenosis and the dilation of the trachea that can all form with the use of a tracheostomy tube. So this was the nitty gritty on trach tube care and the different types of trachs that you might run into or encounter. I will also say that usually um, patients who have trachs, right, unless they have the specialized version that allows them to speak, they will require a one-way valve called a speaking valve that you would place onto the trach. So air goes in through the tube because that's their airway. And then when these patients exhale, it exits 
through their mouth and nose. But by doing that, it allows the air to pass through the vocal cords so that they can speak. Usually these speaking valves, the one that I'm most familiar with is the Passimur speaking valve. And so be aware that if you have a patient with a trach who cannot speak because they cannot pass air adequately through the vocal cords to make the noise, they will um, either need to get one of these speaking valves to put on the outside of their trach, or they'll you'll often see them use their finger to block the trach each time they want to talk to divert the air from coming out of the trach but going up through the vocal cords. So that is the nitty gritty that I've got on tracheostomies. <laughs> Go forth and keep on learning. <laughs> 